0: Matthew 7, that's page 812. If you're using the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs, please take one if it would serve you or if you know someone who would benefit from it. Kids, one more week, this week, until we head back to our school year rhythms of kids' classes for the ones through grade three during the sermon time. But for one last week, there's a sheet back there for you that you can... uh, interact with to help you follow along with the text this morning. Matthew chapter 7. We'll start in verse 15 in just a moment. At a young age, I was instilled with an appreciation for and love for classical music. One reason, of course, is that my parents were professionally trained classical musicians, but another is that I was exposed to classical music that was fun for kids. There was an NPR-produced kids' classical stories back when I was a kid that brought to life some of the lives and backgrounds and compositions of famous composers that you've probably heard of, like Mozart and Beethoven and Tchaikovsky. Pieces of music by Camille Sanson, the uh, Carnival of the Animals was fun to listen to, painting a picture, this veritable safari of animals of various kinds represented by instruments. But there was no such classical work more beloved to me than Sergei Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf. Have you heard of this? Several of you. I used to ask to listen to it over and over again as a little kid. I was mesmerized by the story of a young boy playing out in the wild and coming, eventually in the story, face to face with a dreaded wolf. The French horns, repeated theme for the wolf, communicated the the menacing and ferocious nature of the wolf. It brought, to me at least, kind of a delightful chill. For some reason, I was interested in wolves as a kid. I don't really know why exactly. I had a a wolf theme in my bedroom at one point. I, as a little kid, loved the three little pigs singing Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf. I was intrigued by the story of Little Red Riding Hood. I don't know. I had a thing for wolves. But wolves in real life are not to be trifled with. They're huge, or at least can be. A gray wolf can go up to six feet long and a hundred plus pounds have a head long as, a, as 12 inches. Not quite the same as a golden retriever snuggling on the couch with you, is it? And in our passage today, Jesus uses the image of a wolf to describe the great danger of false teachers. In the context of our passage, Jesus is wrapping up his sermon on the mount. He he brought the message to a climax when he said, What you want others to do to you, you do to them. And now he's in this final section of four subsections of these twos, these pairs. And he's calling his listeners to respond to what he has taught. In the previous section in verse 13, he gave a command to enter his kingdom. By the narrow gate, and then he went on to say that the path to eternal life and a relationship with God is a harder one at first, but worth it in the end. And today's text starts with a command too, though one of a different sort. It's a command that serves as a kind of warning on the heels of his command to follow him through the less comfortable gate and the more painful path. And so Jesus is transitioning to a slightly different topic, but it is a topic that is closely connected to the message of verses 13 through 14, where he calls his followers to enter the narrow gate. Let's read verses 15 through 20 again. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bush- bushes or figs from thistles? So every f- healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus here, verses 15 through 20, is calling for discernment, distinguishing between false teaching and the truth. And there are five elements to Jesus' message here in his call for discernment. The first element is a command to watch out for false teachers. See that in verse 15. Beware false prophets. There's a lot that needs to be said about this, so stay with me as this will be the longer point comes on the heels of the command to get on and stay on the narrow way. And he says here in verse 15, right after that, beware false prophets. I remember as a kid seeing beware of dog signs on gates or windows or houses as a kid. And for whatever reason, my vivid imagination conjured up this this image of a rabid, red-eyed bloodhound ready to attack me if I didn't get away as soon as possible. You ever seen a sign, beware of dog, and known, I need to be aware of my surroundings? That's the idea. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's calling his people to watch out, to beware false teachers. And this command comes right after he calls his disciples to forsake the wide way, the more popular way, for the sake of the narrow and less popular way. And so what Jesus is saying here is there will be prophets, there will be teachers, there will be teaching that tries to persuade you to get off the narrow way that I'm calling you to and on to the wide way. So watch out for them. Stay away. How many of you have ever read Pilgrim's Progress? A lot of hands. That's great to see. Last time I read it was quite a while ago. If you've never read it, you should. And if you have read it and it's been a long time, maybe you ought to read it again. I know I'm feeling that lately. There are modern editions that will make it easier for you to read, and it's certainly easy to find. It's a very, very widely published book. It's, It's an allegorical, fictional story regarding the Christian path and the Christian life. And in Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, who's named Christian, comes across various and numerous people who try to persuade him to get off the path that the king has him on and to leave it for the sake of their own path. And it clearly and helpfully illustrates in Pilgrim's Progress what Jesus is saying here. Beware those who would seek to get you off the path. It's interesting, this word in verse 15, false prophets, is actually one word in the original language. And it's a word, pseudo-prophetes. You see the Greek and then the... uh, transliteration below it. It's one of those Greek words for us English speakers that we can understand. Pseudo means fake, and "prophetes" obviously sounds a lot like prophet. So these are false prophets. They're fake. It's not real what they're teaching. And for Jesus's original listeners, the problem of false teaching and false teachers was actually well understood in their context. Because for the Jews, they had an entire Old Testament with many instances of warnings against false teachers and warnings to false teachers. The best example I can think of in this comes in Jeremiah 6 when God says in verses 13 through 14, from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, peace. When there is no peace, it's actually virtually the exact same language used again later in chapter 8 of Jeremiah. I would invite you to turn briefly in your Old Testaments to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 13. Ezekiel 13, starting in verse 1, we'll just read a handful of verses here. To help us get familiar with the concept that the people of God in Jesus' context were familiar with the danger here and the, the similarities between what Jesus is warning against and what his people have always needed to be on guard for. Ezekiel 13:1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of Man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel, who are prophesying, and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? Therefore, thus says the Lord, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, this is God speaking to false prophets, I am against you, declares the Lord. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace. This was a real problem all throughout Israel's history prophets who would say things are okay when they weren't. Jesus knew it had been a problem, and he knew it was going to continue to be a problem, and so he tells his followers, there's been danger, and there's going to be danger, so watch out. In Jesus' day, at that precise moment when he was speaking, a great example of false teachers were the scribes and Pharisees. Later on in In Jesus' ministry, he actually calls them out for their false teaching. At one point, he says to the Pharisees that their converts became twice the child of hell for following them. Another occasion, he called Pharisees blind, leading the blind. Clearly calling out these false teachers. And so Jesus' life and ministry does display an urgent care for the issue of false teachers and false teaching. He knew that this new community of the kingdom people of God was going to last far beyond his own earthly presence and that they needed to hear this warning. And certainly, the experience of the church ever since has proven his words true, hasn't it? Perhaps you and I don't have literal Jewish Pharisees in our lives, but we have prosperity preachers. We have people and religious groups who deny that Jesus is the fully God just as much as he is fully man? We have those who would water down the message of the gospel into a mere societal renovation project rather than a message of the need for man to be reconciled with his creator because of his sin. And in just those three examples, it's not hard to see how those examples are a call to a wider way rather than the narrow way that Jesus calls us to. Because if Jesus isn't fully God, like some would say, then you can just follow the parts of his teaching that you like best. If life is all about your best life now, there's no better future in heaven. It's just as good as it gets right now, and you're heading for hell, just like Jesus said in verses 13 through 14. And if social renovation is the ultimate goal, the greater and eternal spiritual need for salvation goes often unaddressed. I point you to the words of of Richard Niebuhr who famously critiqued this by calling that a gospel of a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's no gospel at all. Notice the other aspect of what Jesus is saying here. We can't miss this in the second part of verse 15. He's saying, beware of false prophets who are wolves in sheep's clothing. He's not saying, watch out for those who are obviously false teachers, even though we certainly should care about that too. What he's actually saying is, watch out for those who appear to be sheep but are actually wolves. In other words, they're disguised. Now, there's an important clarification that needs to be made here. Some false teachers are more obvious to some than others. So just because someone seems to be obviously a false teacher to you doesn't mean it's obvious to everyone else. And just because it's not obvious to you that some form of teaching is false doesn't mean that what you're hearing is not false teaching. And thus, Jesus is called to watch out. Because that's the point, isn't it? He says they're going to come in sheep's clothing. The image of sheep is prevalent all throughout Scripture as a a description of God's people. They're sheep, and they're his sheep. And so Jesus says that these wolves, these false teachers, are going to appear to be truly Christian. Maybe they'll seem like they're following the Lord. Maybe they will proclaim some of his words. Maybe their lives will display an obedience to some of God's commands. But in reality, Jesus says, some of these people are just disguised. John Stott, whose whose commentary on the Sermon on the Mount I highly recommend to you, says this. False teachers do not announce themselves as spreaders of lies. They claim to be teachers of the truth. They use the language of historic orthodoxy in order to win acceptance from the gullible. But Jesus says in verse 15 that inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You might even have the word ferocious in a translation in front of you. They seem like sheep at first, but their actual nature is wolf like, not sheep like. And as I said at the very beginning, you don't want to mess around with wolves, particularly if you're a sheep. (laughs) They're dangerous for humans, but for sheep, even more so. Wolves were a bigger deal in first century Palestine than in 21st century Denver metro area in terms of our daily lives. We could still relate a little bit. And I know several people in our body have spent some time living in Alaska and perhaps had some closer than they wished to have interactions with wolves. You know, nature documentaries abound these days. I remember watching one called Nature as a Kid on Sunday nights. And while I was studying for this sermon, I was thinking back to episodes that I would see on various kinds of nature documentaries of the wolf or a pack of wolves and the way that they were on the hunt for their prey. And one of their primary hunting tactics is to divide their prey and isolate the weak and then attack with deadly force. I go back to Stott, who says, the good pastor feeds the flock with truth. The false teacher divides like a wolf. And here's where the second element of Jesus' message comes in. It starts with this ominous command, but then he gives assurance. And he says, you will be able to discern. Look at the very beginning of verse 16. You will recognize them. You will recognize them. So he says, beware of false prophets, wolves disguised as sheep. And that's a little scary. I actually feel like I can sense it in some of you this morning. This is ominous stuff. How are we going to know? But the good news Jesus gives is he doesn't want us scared. In fact, he wants us to be confident. And he promises that we will have discernment. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. He says, watch out, and then he says, you will be able to watch out. And so before we go into the illustration that comes next in the second half of verse 16, this illustration about fruits and trees, it helps us know how to exercise discernment. Just take a second, take a deep breath, and give thanks. God gives us assurance. His people, Jesus says, will be able to discern between false teaching and the truth. So it's going to be okay. No need to be anxious You who are the sheep of the good shepherd are precious to him, and he will always hold on to you. So trust him. He does expect you to exercise discernment. He does want you to watch out for the wolves, but he doesn't want you to fret. It's dangerous out there, but you're not alone. It's a war, but the Holy Spirit is inside us. Helping us, we're going to come back to this at the end. But next, let's look at the third element of Jesus's message, where how to describe to discern uh, is is helpfully illustrated. This illustration about discerning differences and diseases. A moment ago, I referenced what John Stott said about wolves about how good pastors feed the sheep but false prophets divide them and here's where the discerning of the true nature of wolves even though they're disguised as sheep in jesus's illustration is fleshed out by jesus he says second starting in the second half of verse 16 are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles every healthy tree bears good fruit diseased trees bear bad fruit a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. Jesus is making the point here through a very helpful illustration of plant life and fruit that you can see what's actually in the nature of a thing by the fruit that it bears. In Palestine at that time, if you were to look at a thorn bush from a distance or at least not very carefully, it's possible that the blackberries on those thorn bushes could be mistaken for grapes. And the same goes for the flowers on a thistle plant being potentially mistaken for figs. And Jesus is saying that just like it's possible to mistake a grapevine for the blackberries on a thorn bush and a fig for the flowers on a thistle, it's possible to mistake a false teacher for for a teacher of the truth. And he wants his disciples to stay true to his teaching, to stay on the narrow path, to remain committed to his gospel, the gospel that calls humanity to come and lay down their lives and die to themselves at the foot of the cross where the Savior laid down his life as an atonement. The gospel that calls humanity to gain life then through faith in the one who was resurrected to life again. But the problem is, wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, do exist. And that's why Jesus is commanding his disciples to watch out. These wolves in sheep's clothing may be hard to distinguish from actual sheep. And so our Lord graciously teaches us that we can discern false from true and illustrates it by telling us to examine their fruit. And so that's the point of the illustration. Jesus is saying, take a close look and you'll see that those aren't grapes. That's a thorn bush. You'll see when you take a close look that those aren't figs. That's just a thistle. Take a close look, he says. Once you've seen that it's a thorn bush, you'll realize that it can't possibly be a grape that you're seeing. Once you've come to realize that that's a thistle, you'll realize that what you're seeing can't actually be a real fig. And because Jesus is asking rhetorically at the end of verse 16, this rhetorical question, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or are figs gathered from thistles? The Implied answer being, of course, no. No. The illustration continues then in verses 17 and 18 when Jesus says that only a healthy tree produces good fruit and only diseased trees produce bad fruit. What's he saying? He's saying that what's inherently inside the tree, perhaps indiscernible at an initial look, the nature of the tree is what determines what kind of fruit it yields, either healthy or diseased. And so both of these illustrations, the first about the different kinds of fruits, the second illustration about the diseased kinds of fruits, point to the same truth. The nature of the plant that the fruit is coming from determines the nature of the fruit that comes from it. Does that make sense? You don't get figs from a thistle, you don't get grapes from a thorn bush, you don't get healthy fruit from a diseased tree, you don't get diseased fruit from a healthy tree. And so the point that Jesus is making is that his people can discern between false teaching and the truth, and they should seek to discern the difference. And by discerning the difference between fruit consistent with the nature of a healthy tree from fruit coming from a diseased tree, they will be able to know By the Spirit's help, whether someone who appears to be one of the sheep is actually a sheep or just a wolf disguised as a sheep. But the question then comes into our minds, how? How do we discern between false teaching and the truth? And that's the million-dollar question. Let's take just a few moments at what else God's Word says so that we might apply this to our own lives. Don't want you to. don't want to leave you with just go discern without giving you a little bit more of what the Word of God says. First, just take a minute to, to see what Matthew, the book of Matthew, says about what good fruit looks like. Turn back a page or two to chapter 3, Matthew 3, in verse 7. This is before the sermon that Jesus is preaching. This is even before... Jesus, in one sense, this is a passage about John the Baptist, who is the forerunner to Jesus, preparing the way for Jesus. And he says, it says in verse 7, when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The fruit, John the Baptist says that God wants, is the fruit of repentance. Turning from sin and behavior that then matches that repentance. In fact, perhaps you noticed John the Baptist's words there in verse 10 in particular sounds a lot like the words of Jesus in our text for today, doesn't it? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so the first kind of good fruit to look for is this, number one, a repentant life. A repentant life. Now turn to Matthew 12. So we're going to go forward a little bit from our text in Matthew 7 today perhaps a few pages for you, into Matthew 12. We'll read verses 33 through 37. This one is Jesus speaking, and here he is calling out the Pharisees, indicting them. He says in verse 33, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good you who when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus is indicting the Pharisees for their careless Words that, in the passage previous to this, attributed the work of God to the work of Satan, and so good fruit number two would be sound words, first a repentant life, next sound words. Now, turn maybe just a little bit farther to Matthew thirteen this will be the, this the final example in matthew 's gospel that we 'll look at this morning, even though there are others. This is in the parable. After the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, verse 18, he's explaining it, and he's talking about soil that produces fruit. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. Yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Here we go, verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields In one case, a hundredfold, another 60, another 30. What Jesus is saying here is that good fruit number three is a responsive life, a life that responds to God's word, a life that changes whenever it hears God's word, not just from the moment of conversion, even though that's especially what Jesus is talking about here, but you can apply that also to our, throughout our daily lives, continually responding to the word of God. So these three examples in Matthew's gospel aren't the only ones, but they're helpful for us, I think, in seeking to grow in our own discernment as we watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing. According to Matthew's gospel, the outflow of a healthy tree, so to speak, will be the fruits of a repentant life, not pridefully resisting correction or exhortation, but turning from sin always and moving towards God. It would also be the fruit of sound words, not speaking carelessly, certainly not untruthfully, certainly not contradicting the revealed word of God. And then also a life that regularly responds to God's word with change. I have two more, two more sections I want to point you to. This one, not in Matthew, but very important teaching of the Apostle Paul further on in the New Testament. First Timothy is the first one. The second one is 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy 6 to start. Would you turn there with me? 1 Timothy 6. And we'll read verses 6 through 10. 3 through 10 of First Timothy 6. There's a lot here, but I'll try to summarize it after we read it. Verse 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these we will be content, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themself, themselves with many pangs. Let me try to summarize here. Part of what Paul is saying is that bad fruit looks like this. False teaching looks like this. It's those who are prideful. It's those who love to argue and quarrel. It's those who stir up envy and jealousy and division in the body of Christ. Those who are always having some kind of friction with other people. And it also goes on to say that they crave personal gain and money. So here's some examples of bad fruit, false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing. But now turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Just a few more verses, and then our little sword drill will be over. 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 18. Paul, once again talking to his protege Timothy, says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Skip down to verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome a kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So Paul here would call us to ask, is this teacher, is this teaching building up Christians? Is it characterized by gentleness? Is it characterized by kindness? Is it Patient and long-suffering in its instruction and correction? Or is this teacher and is their teaching tearing Christians down by upsetting their faith, by stirring up division, by promoting bitterness and backbiting? Again, I'll just briefly mention what John Stott says in his book on the Sermon on the Mount. He just gives three categories. I don't have them on the screens or anything for you. Three categories for examining teachers and their teaching. One is examining their character. Two is examining their actual teaching. And three is examining their influence. In other words, what what is the effect that they're having on the body of Christ? And so do you want to know if someone is a wolf in sheep's clothing? Jesus says, examine their fruit. And the New Testament gives us very helpful instructions on how to do so, how to see what's coming out and what is bad and what is good. Now, There is a danger for us as we seek to examine and discern fruit. And that's where the fourth element of Jesus' message in our text for today is helpful. Back in Matthew 7, number four, he gives a promise that false teachers will be judged. The danger that I'm referring to is what I have called heresy hunting. John Stott, turns out, calls it the same thing, and I honestly don't know if I got it from him, having read his stuff in the years past, or if I just happened to come up with the same alliterated title as him. I don't know. But here's what he says about this idea of heresy hunting. I have it on the screen for you. This warning, specifically talking about Matthew 7 here, this warning gives no encouragement either to become suspicious of everybody or to take up as our hobby the disreputable sport known as heresy hunting. The reason that we don't have to become these worked up, self righteous heresy hunters is what Jesus says in verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is consistent with other instances of teaching about judgment coming to those whose fruit does not match what a real sheep of the good shepherd looks like. Jesus says that diseased trees bear bad fruit. And bad trees are of no use and are therefore thrown into the fire. In other words, they are judged. It's a promise that Jesus is giving here that serves two functions. One, a warning to false teachers and to those who follow their false teaching. And number two, a comfort to those who are truly Jesus' sheep and who want to discern between true and false teaching. And so Jesus is not calling us, even as he is calling us to discernment, he is not calling us to be people who are always suspicious, as John Stott says, who are always up on the latest controversy, who are always, as Paul said in First and Second Timothy, quarreling about words, who then ruin their hearers. That's the exact words of Paul. People who are always involved, once again, to use Paul's language, in an ignorant controversy. Or breeding quarrels. That's the language Paul uses to describe false teachers. And so the irony is that you could become the very thing that you're so bent on exposing because pride and self-righteousness are insidious and they can creep in and take over and lead you into the very same sin that you lost vigilance for because of your over-vigilance for someone else. And so, my friends, false teachers will be Judged, they will be dealt with, and that is really scary for them, and it's really good news for the sheep. Watch out for false teachers. This is another instance of the many, many times in the holy scriptures where we are to hold intention to two things at the same time that to us may feel opposed to one another or very difficult to hold at the same time. We must be vigilant. We must have discernment. We must beware and watch out. And yet. We must not become like the very false teachers that Paul speaks of in First and Second Timothy, breeding quarrels, stirring up ignorant controversies, becoming heresy hunters. Remember that God is the judge, not you. And you may think you're seeing bad fruit, and you might be right. And if you are, watch out. But just be careful, because it takes time for fruit to fully develop a lot of times. And to just quickly or give a knee-jerk reaction and judge someone as a false teacher whose life may actually be characterized by the good fruit seen in Matthew's gospel would be a mistake. The test for good fruit is reliable, but it's not an easy or quick fix like we always want. Whether or not it's good or bad might not be obvious at first, and so slower, very humble, and even meek examinations of fruit or what our Lord would call us to. Not a, not a quick or knee-jerk reaction that makes swift judgments. In an age of hot takes, some of our takes need to be a little colder, given, given some time to simmer and understand what's really going on. Remember, Jesus' words to us in Matthew 7 about beware false prophets comes just a few verses after verses 1 through 5 of Matthew 7, where he calls us not to be judging warns us that we will be judged with the same measure, and calls out the hypocrisy of looking at the specks in others' eyes while we have logs in ours. So one application would just be to be quicker to second-guess your own judgment and slower, therefore, to pass judgment. I couldn't resist putting this in. I don't remember who sent it to me. Someone sent it to me recently. A quote from a late 1800s preacher named DeWitt Talmadge. And he said this about those who are engaged in quote-unquote heresy hunting. There are in every community and in every church watchdogs who feel called upon to keep their eyes on others and growl. They are full of suspicion. They wonder if this man is not dishonest, if that man is not unclean, if there is not something wrong about the other man. They're always the first to hear of anything wrong. Vultures are always the first to smell carrion. They are self-appointed detectives. And then he goes on to say, I lay down this rule as a rule without any exception, that those people who have the most faults themselves are the most merciless in their watching of others. From scalp of head to sole of foot, they are full of jealousies and hypercriticisms. They spend their life in hunting for muskrats and mud turtles instead of hunting for rocky mountain eagles. Always for something mean or little instead of something grand. They look at their neighbor's imperfections through a microscope and look at their own imperfections through a telescope upside down. Twenty faults of their own do not hurt them so much as one fault of someone else. Their neighbor's imperfections are like gnats, and they strain them out. Their own imperfections are like camels, and they swallow them. And so may God protect Redeemer Bible Church from such hearts and lives. May he judge false teachers who are truly false. And rest assured, my friends, false teachers will be judged. Speaking of assurance... That's how Jesus ends this little section with the same thing that he said in verse 16. He says it again, number five, his assurance repeated, you will have discernment. He says it again right there in verse 20. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. I won't say anything I've already said again, but just hear that assurance from Jesus in light of everything else we've looked at. So don't be afraid. Do be vigilant but don't be afraid. Don't be arrogant. Be confident and humble. My friends, you do not want to end up in the same place that the false teachers of Paul's day were in. censorious to use an old word I mentioned back in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Bitter, divisive, prideful, judgmental. So if you're wondering If something or someone that you're hearing is or is not consistent with Jesus' teaching and you're having trouble with discernment, I give you three simple, practical tips. Number one, ask the Spirit for guidance. If He resides in you, He will help you. Pray about it. The Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus to be our helper. So ask for help. Number two, search the Scriptures to see if what you're hearing is true or false. And if what you're seeing in that person or in their teaching is consistent with what Jesus would call healthy or diseased fruit. And as you look humbly, look closely. Number three, seek the counsel of other godly believers. My friends, you've got wonderful brothers and sisters all around you in this congregation with the knowledge of the scriptures, with experiences in life that have helped them gain wisdom, with love for Jesus that drives them and will help you stay pointed north, so to speak. And you know, that's part of why God has given you elders, It's not that Brian and I are anything extraordinary, but God has put us here at this time for the guarding of the teaching and the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So feel free to lean on us. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. You're going to have to be gracious with us just like we need to be gracious with you. And you need to measure what we say by what Scripture says. But it is one of the things that the Lord has graciously given as a means for identifying and resisting the evil one's schemes body of Christ and its elders. I would invite you, in addition, to just look and think through the application questions you have on your worship guide for today. What might be some examples of false teaching to watch out for today? And how can you be sure whether it is actually false teaching or not? Why, second question, is heresy hunting wrong? Is that something you need to guard against? How can you be careful about this potential danger? And then finally, how can you practically pursue a healthy mixture of confident discernment and humble hope in Jesus as you follow his command to watch out for false teachers? My friends, remember, Jesus is the one who said these words, and he is the one at the center of it all. He's preaching this sermon, he is itself the very message that he's preaching as well the fulfillment of all righteousness, the shepherd of the sheep. And so it should be no wonder to us that Jesus would say these things. He loves his sheep. He came to rescue his sheep. He's got a vested interest in keeping the wolves away. You know, Jesus, when he said these things to his disciples, a very important thing hadn't happened yet. He was on his way to the cross, but he hadn't actually gotten there yet, physically. But eventually, he did hang on the cross. He did bear the sins of his people as an atonement. And when he did, Jesus said, it is is finished so he actually accomplished something and when he rose from the dead three days later his people were guaranteed a resurrection too, an eternal place with him and in his presence and before jesus ascended into heaven he promised that he would send his holy spirit and at pentecost that's exactly what happened and so now my friends because of who jesus is because of what he has done because he is our risen savior We who believe have the Holy Spirit inside us and eternity ahead of us. And so as you follow Jesus, following his commands to watch out for false teachers, do so with thankfulness to Jesus, with confidence because of the Holy Spirit inside you, and with humility because you are a saved servant of the King. You know, when the three little pigs sang, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? That was pretty foolish. They needed to be afraid of the big bad wolf. And we must be vigilant, though not afraid, like the three little pigs. We must watch out for false teaching. But like Peter, in Peter and the Wolf, we must also be brave. Because no wolf is any match for the lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah has already been victorious over the evil wolves disguised as sheep. And so go forward in your Christian walk in the kingdom of Jesus with vigilance, with faith, with faith with confidence and humility. Let's pray. O Lord in heaven, may your word, the word of Christ, dwell in us richly. May we be doers of the word and not hearers only. May we write your words eternal truth upon, may you write your words eternal truth upon our hearts. The grass withers, the flower fails, but your word endures forever. Amen. Let's take a few minutes and pray quietly in our hearts, meditating on these words.